I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11 and verse 1. Mark 11, verse 1. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, tied whereon never man sat, loose him and bring him. And we'll be thinking about Christ's person and manner and power as we look through at least the first half of this chapter this morning. They're on the way to Jerusalem. It will be the last week of the Saviour's life, culminating in Calvary and the resurrection. He's healed two blind men at Jericho before beginning on this road. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. There are many pilgrims on the road heading to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. There are also, there's also great excitement among the people because there are many witnesses of the raising of Lazarus and that's being spoken about everywhere. The people are full of no doubt questionings. Is he going to Jerusalem? Will he not be taken and arrested? They know the hostility of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. But here he is. And he's going, first of all, to experience the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we read here of how he sends two of the disciples to find that cult on which he will sit as he enters Jerusalem. And we note, just as we begin, the person of Christ. He is divine, of course. He's God as well as man. He knows all things. He knows in detail what he is going to do. He knows the divine plan, how he will allow himself in apparent weakness to be arrested and ill-treated and humiliated and tried how he will go to Calvary. He will allow it all. He could have stopped it at any point, but he goes willingly to suffer, to die, to make an atonement for all who would be saved in the history of the world, to bear in his own body on the tree the punishment, the eternal punishment due to them. And he would, in a matter of six hours, somehow impossibly suffer and bear away that concentrated eternal punishment, a pain, a separate experience of separation from the Father, agonies of soul that no human speech can adequately describe, or the wounds and the nails through hands and feet and the crown of thorns upon his brow, and all the insults and the torturing and the hanging in the sun, that was nothing. The wounds from the lashing he'd received, that was nothing by comparison with the inner pain of the eternal Son of God bearing away the sin of the world. No passion film could possibly depict 
the tiniest fraction of what the Lord suffered and experienced and tasted for us, for those who believe throughout time. Well, dear friends, he knows what's going to happen. And we read just in passing how he instructs the disciples. And if any man say unto you about the loosing of the colt, why do ye this? Say that the Lord hath need of him. That's very interesting. Not even your Lord. Assuming that the owners of the animal, according to Matthew's gospel, there were actually two. Mark focuses only on the important one, the one whom Christ the Lord was to ride on. There was the mare and there was the colt. When challenged, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of him, the Lord of heaven and earth, certainly the Lord of Israel, the son of David, the king has need of him. And they were evidently believers in Christ, and they released the animal. And Christ knew even the congregation, the, uh, the conversation rather, down to the word that would take place. Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And so it came to pass. He knew what lay ahead. He knew exactly what would happen. They found the colt tied by the door outside in a place where two ways met, and they loose him, and so on. And then down in verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus, cast their garments, this is the disciples, their outer garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many, in addition to the disciples of the crowd, the other disciples that followed Christ, and pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem, they joined in and many spread their garments along the road. Why, for the moment, they so believed this is the son of David at their cost. Perhaps you wouldn't mind today to lose a coat. But in those days, you owned a coat for years. You were poor people. It was precious and valuable to you. And here they are casting their outer garments in the road so that the colt ridden, the donkey ridden by Christ would not touch the road. He was so important. They cut down branches also of the trees and strawed them in the way. There was going to be a great acclamation of him. He was the son of David. Of course, sadly, they didn't fully understand they thought when Messiah came, the great descendant of David, even more, the great descendant of Adam, the great descendant of Abraham and the patriarchs, when the long, long expected and the long prophesied Messiah came, the only figure in human history ever to be so prophesied, the Messiah, Christ the Lord, they thought when he came, he would be merely a political human deliverer who would make Israel great and dominant. They didn't realize yet, not even the inner disciples, 
that he would be a saviour from sin, one who would reconcile with God the Father. All that understanding would come after he'd been to Calvary. Everything would become clear to them, but they don't see that yet. But the great crowd acclaim him. And verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They proclaim in the words of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9, and other passages also. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Why did Christ allow all that? Why did he allow himself to ride in, uh, on a colt into Jerusalem in triumph with everyone claiming him? And the children went on doing it. They took this cry, Hosanna to the son of David, into the temple and infuriated the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. They wouldn't be quiet. But why did he permit it? Well, clearly because it was prophesied that he would do just this, and it was, by the prophet Zechariah. But also because it identified him. Here he was, publicly identified and announced and introduced as the expected Messiah, the Son of God. That's what they were proclaiming. And so he had that kind of uh, coronation, if you like, as he went in to Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. There was the Sabbath to take place. That would be quiet. And then the entry into Jerusalem on the following day, on the Sunday. Their Sabbath was Saturday. On Sunday, he entered in. And he let, verse 11, you see that he looked about him upon all things. He is the Lord of the temple, remember. He is the temple. The temple was only picture language. The period of worship of the Jews and the, the great temple with all its symbols, it was all a kind of symbolic prophecy and prediction of Christ Messiah and his atoning death, reconciliation with God, peace with God. That's what all the symbols meant and the sacrifices which prefigured his sacrifice. He was the fulfillment of the temple and the Lord of the temple. And when he'd looked upon everything, he preached there before, but now he sees, he sees the uh, outer court of the temple, the vast outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and it's like a market. It's full of animals. It's full of tables and money changers. The people brought their money, their currency, but it had to be the special Jewish temple money that they used for their offerings, and the exchange rates were set crookedly to enrich the priests, so the money had to be changed and the priests had to make their money and the sacrificial animals had to be sold. Why didn't the people bring their own animals as they were intended to from their small holdings? Oh, because they'd met so often with problems 
They take their animal to the temple and the examining priest says, it isn't perfect. You'll have to buy one from us. And so people stop bringing their animals and they knew they'd have to buy everything. And they were sold at exorbitant rates. Imagine the outer court of the temple full of animal noises and stench and people selling and auctioning possibly and the money changes and then the crates full of doves for the offerings of the poor and they would have to pay rates that they couldn't afford also. What a disgraceful abuse of the temple. He looked about upon all things. He knew what he would do the following day. And then he went to Bethany with the twelve. Verse 12. On the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. I can't tell you why, but he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply, he might find anything thereon. This is the divine Son of God. He is man, but he is God. He knows what he is doing. He knows that fig tree has no fruit. But he goes to it at some distance, and the disciples, of course, follow. They're possibly hungry too, and they're all wondering. And he makes as if to examine it for fruit, knowing perfectly well that there will be no fruit. Because Mark's gospel tells us that it wasn't the time for fruit. But don't uh, uh, take that as wholly the reality. It wasn't the time for fruit. The leaves come first on the fig and the fruits come later. But there, in that place, small fruits came with the leaves. And that's no doubt what the Savior was looking for. It wasn't the time for the large fruits. But he knew it wouldn't have any. It would be only leaves. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. That's going to be very significant. For the time of figs, the full bearing, yielding, wasn't yet, but there should have been small ones. There should have been something, but that tree was going to be fruitless both ways. No advanced small fruit, no main crop. It was only leaves. What did it mean? Especially when he condemned the tree. The Lord condemned it. You will not bear fruit ever. And promptly, Matthew tells us, the tree began to wither. By the next day, it was completely shriveled and dead. But it began straight away to wither and lose its color and its rigidity and die. Well, of course, as he talked, so he wrought. And the other way round, he's... He's going to cast out the money changers and the cattle from the temple. He's going to denounce the chief priests 
the scribes and the Pharisees. He's going to bring to an end the Jewish order. He will fulfill the ancient prophecies and suffer and die on Calvary. And the age of special Jewish privilege, the age of the Jewish church, will come to a close. And after that will be the international church of Jesus Christ the Lord. Jews and Gentiles, all one, saved by the blood of Christ. All elect Jews, all elect Gentiles, among the redeemed who will be saved. He's going to change everything. And this fig tree is a picture of that. Only leaves. What bustling activity there was in the temple. An uninformed visitor may come and say, there's life here. This is full of life. Look at everything. It's going on. The sacrifices, the ritual, the ceremonies, the crowds coming. This headquarters, so focal point of Judaism is thriving. But it was all leaves and no fruit, no godliness, no recognition of the Savior, no receiving of their Messiah. They would shout for his crucifixion, no fruit. Dear friends, that could be true of us. There are churches full of activity, all kinds of things going on, bands, orchestras, drama, gimmicks, crowds, this and that, all kinds of things. If you were undiscerning, you'd say, it's a place of life. Is it all leaves? No real conversions. No transformation of life. No people finding and walking with the Lord. Brought humbly to repentance, given new life and a new nature. Is it all leaves and no fruits? That was condemned by the Lord. And the tree, like the Jewish era, would wither and die. A.D. 70, Titus, the Roman general, would lead his troops and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And there would be no more Jewish temple. And the end of the Jewish church would be completed. The tree was an illustration. Jesus said, No man eat of thee hereafter forever. Then verse 15, he comes to the temple and begins to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. This is the second time. Now you're seeing his power. At the beginning of his ministry, he cleared them out of the temple. Within three years, probably within weeks, they were back selling the animals, changing the money at exorbitant rates, and so on. All that had come back. How did he do it? The first time, we read, he made a kind of token symbolic whip of cords 
I don't suppose for a moment he whipped anybody. That was a symbol. But by his powerful word, divinity shined through the human Christ. They couldn't resist. They were cleared out. And now he does it again. Where's the temple guard? All these people are going to protect their businesses, their income, their pitch and so on, and their animals. One man, Christ, can cast them all out and nothing could be done and they couldn't resist him. That's his divinity shining through the power of the Lord. And he says to them, verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? Or the alternative translation in your margin, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And that's the correct quotation from the Old Testament. A house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. What's happening today, friends? If you go into the church to worship, will it be worship? Will it be a house of prayer? A house of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is words, whether they're thought or sung or said. Prayer is words directed to God. Ideas that can be expressed in words. What is the house of God, the temple, now the churches of Christ, houses of prayer, first and foremost? Oh, you would think they were houses of music. You would think they were houses of instrumentalism and clever arrangements. You'd think they were houses of rhythm. The hypnotic effect of rhythm. The rhythm drug to lift you, move you, manipulate your feelings. Heavy rhythms, strident rhythms, pulsating constantly. You'd think that was the house of God. No, words. Prayer. Worship is words. The cry of the reformers. Worship is words. Out with this Roman theatre, they said in their day. Out with the costumes and the incense and the candles and the stained glass. That unfortunately came back quite a lot. Out with the theatricals and the drama and the performance and the attempts to manipulate feelings and create feelings artificially. In with words, God's words, sacred words, God-honoring words, felt from the heart, wings to heaven, and the whole soul joins in. What is the feeling system? It's a system of response. Response to thoughts. You worship with the mind and the heart joins in. That's feeling, spiritual feeling, worship feeling. Not drumming up sensual feelings with sound and spectacle. 
They polluted the house of God. There are so-called Christians polluting the house of God everywhere in the world today, borrowing from this godless world and employing that to entertain people. No, dear friends, the teaching of this, Christ cast it all out, and the will of Christ is to cast it all out today. And we'll try to do that, friends. I would not have, if I had my way, and I hope you would all agree with me, not one song, not one worship song from the stable of people who are polluting the house of God. People who are just making money, like the priests and the money changers, and the people who dress up like pop stars and prance across the platform and play the world's instruments and entertain, and they write their songs. And some sounder people mistakenly say, well, we'll pick the best of them. I wouldn't take anything from the stable of the polluted and the corrupt. The Lord cast them all out of the temple. And we want our church to be a house of prayer. We can sing sensible words. Why, even their songs seem to be, most of them, written in deliberately half-literate style. Extraordinary. People who are quite capable of writing good, sound, legitimate verse write bad verse for the sake of writing a Christian song and faulty verse which obeys none of the rules of grammar and poetry. What a strange world we're in. Anyway, I shouldn't uh, divert into too much of that. That's just to corrupt. No wonder there's no sense of God in these churches. No wonder there's no real sense of holiness. Friends, the house of God is a house of prayer. The scribes and chief priests heard it, sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. Even was come, he went out of the city, and in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Look at the teaching of Christ. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest, is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. Now listen, does this trouble you? For verily I say unto you, used to trouble me, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, the Mount of Olives, the whole area, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shalt not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. What do you make of that? The promise of Christ. If you stand in front of a mountain and say, be removed, be cast into the sea, if you can believe that it will be done, 
it will be done. Well, quite obviously, so obviously, you are not to take those words literally. If Christ had said, if you say to this tree, be removed and cast into the sea, perhaps somebody might think, oh, I think that should be taken literally. You can somehow imagine that would be achievable. That might accomplish something. So to make sure that none of us can be so foolish as to think this is to be interpreted absolutely literally, Christ chooses a mountain. Because surely nobody would think that this should be taken literally. It's an illustration. It's a symbol. It's an example. He's instructing the future apostles. Those who will be under God's power, founders of the New Testament church, the greatest missionaries and church planters, those who are bringing about the birth of visible birth of the church of Christ. He's instructing them. You must have great faith. You must believe. So he chooses a mountain. This mountain, if it's a, an obstacle to you, if it's in the way of the progress of the work and of the church, it can be made to disappear, cast into the sea, never to be seen again, rendered invisible to you, if you believe. So what does it symbolize? And what is it referring to? Well, here were the disciples after the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and then comes the wait and the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit and they will embark upon their task of spreading the gospel into the world of those days. First of all, They've got intense Jewish nationalism against them. The Jewish leaders are after their blood. They will surely take them, arrest them, end their whole mission. What an obstacle! The hypocrisy of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. What a mountain! How can they prosper? How can they carry out the Great Commission? How can they do it? We must believe the words of our Saviour and our Lord who has commissioned us that as we proclaim to all the world, so he will be with us and the obstacles will be removed and the word will go forth and we may well endure suffering and even martyrdom. But the word will go forth. The mountain will be removed into the sea. It will never stand in our way. And so they proved. The impenetrable, immovable mountain of Jewish leadership, opposition and nationalism was just removed out of their way. And within half a century, 
The gospel was everywhere. Within days, 3,000 were converted, followed by 5,000, followed by thousands. And on it went. And in no time, the gospel was throughout Europe. Dear friends, the removal of the mountain, and we see it in church history. You think of the Reformation. Now I know there were all kinds of currents and strands of influence that God used to prepare the way for the Reformation. But nevertheless, the fundamental drama of the Reformation remains. Luther, a penniless monk, and a band of likewise penniless monks who stood with him turned the iron grip of the Roman Catholic Empire upside down. One man nailed his 95 theses in 1517 to the door of the castle church of Rittenberg and it heralded the beginning of mighty reformation the mountain of Catholicism and its stranglehold on society was broken and removed and the stranglehold was cast into the sea and so it is the annals of missionary endeavour we'll have to read the book and how different things have happened and conquests have been made and access to nations and wonderful things accomplished and souls saved in their hundreds of thousands the mountain removed so many mountains we've had mountains removed here in our much smaller way when my wife and I came to this place in 1970 and brother Chris Laws came with us there were just a small band of people and everybody said to us do not accept a call there it cannot be revived it has never happened in downtown central London but there were godly people who were here and sometimes in a the service there'd be 40, 45 people and the average age was in the 80s and mostly ladies, and I often say, first Lord's Supper meeting I took here, all the men were on the platform. And the total offering of the church in a week, in the winter, didn't pay the heating bill, let alone everything else. And the corrupt and doctrinally mixed Baptist Union wanted to take over the premises and turned it into some sort of headquarters and the folk were praying people and we came and it wasn't us that changed things it was the power of God it was like removing a mountain and casting it into the sea and people began to come in and visitors and young people who stayed with us for several decades and God rebuilt his church and people have passed through this church and gone home to places all over the world and all over the country and been a blessing to many, many other local churches and all kinds of things 
have been built up and accomplished by the blessing of God. We are very ordinary people. This happens constantly. The mountain is cast into the sea. These, these are the words of Christ and we look at the great promise down here in verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire. We're talking about the work of God. Not things I desire for myself. Lord, I want a bigger car. Lord, I want a this. Lord, I want a that. That's the corrupt and phony prosperity gospel preachers who preach like that. The Lord is talking to his disciples about the work of the church. It's not if I want gold-plated bath taps badly enough and pray for them, the Lord will give them to me. If I'm a true Christian, he'll more likely discipline me for having such objectives. What things soever you desire for the glory of God, for the building of the church, for the winning of souls, for the blessing of others, when you pray, believe that you receive them, the Lord will bless you in his great wisdom, and ye shall have them. Dear friends, that's probably enough for us today, except that we must add the condition to the promise as we close. Verse 25, And when ye stand praying for these wonderful things, forgive if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Just that condition. If we would that our prayers are answered, we must be a forgiving people.